Hello, welcome to the Beatles Books podcast with me, Joe Wisby. My guest for this episode is Jay Bergen, who joined me to discuss his book, Lennon, the Mobster and the Lawyer. Jay is the lawyer of the title, and the man that represented John during his 1976 legal battle against mobster Morris Levy, who had released an unauthorised version of John's rock and roll album. Jay's book tells the story of this trial, and it contains John's complete testimony from the witness stand, and offers a real insight into this window of John's life. Jay Bergen, hello, welcome to the Beatles Books podcast. How are you? I'm fine, thank you very much. I'm going to enjoy talking to you about the book. Let's hope so. Um, So we should establish, first of all, that we're here to talk about Lennon, the mobster, and the lawyer, the untold story. The events in this book are over 40 years ago now. I'm curious to find out what led you to decide to write this book now. Well, I've been carrying around for over 40 years, five or six banker's boxes with the entire file of the case, the entire transcript, exhibits and everything. And I did that through five moves and an unpleasant and difficult divorce. And when we moved down from New York to, uh, to Saluda in North Carolina, I had these boxes stored in a storeroom in back of our garage. And I'd never looked at them during the 40 years. And I was, it was just about five years ago now, Joe, that I went out to the, uh, the garage and opened up one of the boxes Uh, I started reading John's testimony and I realized that there was, I thought there was a book here uh, and a book that uh, Beatles and John Lennon fans would really appreciate because nobody's written about the case. There have been little bits and pieces, but nobody's gotten it right. And since I was there, I thought I could tell the whole story about uh, this very early period when John dropped out of the music business and was just chilling. So that's, that's what started it. So we should establish, if we can, the nature of, of the case itself. So if you could just sum up for us what the case was and how you became involved in it. John had started in 1973, the, uh, this rock and roll album, which, which he called, you know, kind of his oldies album. Phil Spector was producing it. Phil was kind of flaking out and, and disappeared with the tapes. Uh, and John had made a deal with Morris Levy, who was a notorious uh, mafia-connected uh, record and publishing executive in New York, uh, that to settle a come-together, you-can't-catch-me copyright infringement case, which was really bogus, uh, that John would record three songs on his next album, which he thought was going to be the rock and roll album. And when that didn't happen, because Phil disappeared with the tapes and John did Walls and Bridges, Morris Levy called and wanted to meet with John. Finally, uh, they met in October of 1974. John explained to uh, Morris that he was going to go back in and finish the album, the rock and roll album, and his songs would be on it. And it came up about the possibility that John had thought of selling it on TV because he was worried that the critics were waiting and wait for this album to really attack it because of all the negative publicity about John's Lost Weekend. And Morris jumped on that and said, well, I have a company that sells records on TV. And John and Harold Sider, who was his business advisor at the time, said, 
John would have to get permission from EMI because he is exclusively with EMR. Well, as John worked on the album in uh, the fall of uh, 1974, Morris kept kind of pushing him about, I want to hear my songs. I want to hear my songs. And John made the mistake. I learned working with John that he's, first of all, he's very shy. And secondly, he doesn't like to say no to people. It's very hard for him to say no. So Morris finally forced him, in John's mind, to give him a reel-to-reel tape, two tapes of the album. And Morris kept saying, when are you going to get permission from EMI? When are you going to get permission from EMI? And finally, when Harold Sider, John's business advisor, approached EMI, they said, and Capital, they said, no, 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 we're going to sell this just like every other Beatles album. Uh, that, that just doesn't make any sense. Well, and Morris had, had written a letter in early January 75 saying he had an oral agreement from John to sell this album worldwide uh, on TV. And uh, my senior partner in the law firm I was where, where I was, uh, David Dalgenis, had been representing uh, John since John, uh, George, and Ringo separated from Alan Klein. And I had heard rumors about the possibility that there was going to be uh, some litigation involving this rock and roll album. So I went to David and I said, if there is going to be any litigation, I want to be involved. And one day he called me down to his office, handed me Morris Levy's January letter and said, can you go to a meeting at five o'clock this afternoon? This was February 3rd, 1975, over at Capitol Records. And I went to the meeting. There were several capital lawyers there, one from Los Angeles. And they were kind of briefing me on the fact that they had learned that Morris was going to start advertising this album on TV. Uh, and in the meeting, in the middle of the meeting, the door to the conference room opened and John Lennon walked in. I did not know he was going to be there. I don't know whether the capital lawyers did, but he walked in, introduced everybody, introduced themselves, and we continued to talk. Uh, about what was happening. John was very worried about the album. He said there was a lot of songs that he was going to have to cut because of the recording problems in uh, LA in 73. And the Capitol lawyers mentioned the possibility of, of moving in court to get an injunction against Morris Levy. And uh, I kind of dissuaded him from, from that. I said, that's going to be difficult. It's time consuming. And then I asked John, where are you in terms of finishing the album? And he said, I can finish it in two days. Now, this was February 3rd. And I looked at Capitol. I said, what about that? And John then interrupted and said, I really want to get this finished. This has been, you know, the longest album I've ever worked on. I'm sick of it. I want to finish it and move on. So that's what he did. And Capitol, uh, we started sending out telegrams to TV stations saying, this is an unauthorized album. So Morris puts out the album. Capital rushed John's album into production because he did go into the studio on February 4th and 5th, finished it. And Morris, as soon as the album came out, the, the official album, he pulled it, his album, and I think it had sold like 1,250 copies. And then about a week after the Capital album came out, he filed a lawsuit in New York State Court against. John, Capital, EMI, Harold Sider, and Apple Records. That's when we were 
off to the races, as they say. <laughs> you talk in the book a little bit about your first kind of encounters with, with John, obviously before the trial starts. Tell us a little bit about what he was like, what impression you got, what kind of a person he was from the time that you spent with him. From the, the beginning when he walked in, you know, of course I'm thinking, oh, this is John Lennon. And I had been a big Beatles fan. Uh, I was a rock and roll fan from the time I was in high school in the early 50s. But after we started talking, my view of him was he was he was a client. He was going to be my client. And I had to learn as much about the facts of this case as possible. Uh, we spent a lot of time talking that day. Uh, finally, after the decision was made that he was going to go into the studio, John and I left together, rode down the elevator. And in the elevator, he said, are you one of the lawyers? And I knew that John, I read that he was not a big fan of lawyers or accountants or, uh, I mean, he was kind of naive about business and didn't want to be involved in business. And I said, yes, I am. I said, but please don't hold that against me. So he, he laughed. And two days later, we met again with the Capital Lawyers, May Pang, Harold Sider, and we went all over the, the facts for a couple of hours. And as, as we got going, John and I just developed this, uh, this relationship where he was the client, I was the lawyer. All I was interested in was, uh, was the facts uh, of the case. And when we got the two lawsuits, I called him, spoke to him, explained what was going on. He and Yoko were very worried about the case, and they kept telling me, I'm not going to settle with Morris because I think he thought he had settled the come together case, and now Morris really had his, uh, he was in Morris's clutches. And he said, I want to hold down the amount of money I'm going to owe Morris after the case is over. And I said, if I have anything to do, do with it, you're not going to owe him anything, but let's move on. He and I really, I think, developed a, a rapport. And I, I often do that with a lot of clients in my career. They were, they were friends. They, you know, they weren't buddies. We didn't hang out together or anything. But I tried to develop a relationship where they realized that I was their lawyer and I was going to do the best job possible. You describe in the book this, the time that you go to the Dakota building in New York and you, you meet Yoko. Uh, tell us a little bit about what that was like and what response you got from Yoko when you met her. Well, after the two cases were filed, uh, the second case was in federal court. I had never in my career had two cases filed by the same plaintiff against my clients or, my, or one of my clients. And John was my only client. And that was really turned out to be a fatal mistake because Cases in the New York Supreme Court move very slowly. Cases in the federal court move quickly because the judges have a calendar and they want to move, move things along quickly, particularly the judge that was assigned by just choice, by lot, uh, to that case. So after the both cases were filed, John called me one day in the office and said, can you come up to the uh, uh, Dakota Yoko would like to meet you. And I said, sure. You know, can, should I bring anything? No, no. She just wants to meet you. So up to the Dakota, I go. And you know, when you get off the elevator, when the elevator door opens uh, in the Dakota, it's a building that was built in the 1880s. There's another door that opens right into the apartment. So this young, young guy 
opened the door for me, showed me to a, a chair. And then a few minutes later, uh, Yoko walked in. John was not there, just the two of us. She was then served coffee and something else that she was uh, going to eat. I think, I think she was eating black caviar. This was about 11 o'clock in the morning. I, I don't know whether she was. And she was dressed all in black. And I guess at this time, she, she was pregnant. So it was obvious that she had read the, the two complaints. She asked me a lot of questions about my background, how long I had been practicing law and everything. And we talked for about an hour or an hour or more. And she asked great questions, kind of in a polite way. She really wanted to know who I was and what the case was about and what I thought of the case. And she told me the same thing that John had. We just want to keep the amount of money down that we're going to owe Morris. We're very worried about the case. And this is going to sound a little odd, but it wasn't until I started writing the book five years ago and started really getting into the facts that I realized that that was an audition. I had learned more about the relationship between John and Yoko. And it suddenly hit me one day, you know, sometime in the last five years, that if she hadn't liked me, I would have been off the case. But I guess I'm not a very deep thinker about some things. I was talking to his wife. Okay, I'll explain the case to her. That's what happened. She was very smart, Joe. You wouldn't be the first person to uh, to have said that about, about Yoko Ono. Something that I really liked in the book, you tell these two stories where you and John go for a, a walk in the, the park and another time where you go and watch him rehearse the final TV appearance, the salute to Lou Grade uh, appearance. Tell us a little bit about what it was like seeing John in, in those kind of surroundings. Well, John, John loved New York City. You know, we spent a lot of time together because he was really, he was really into the case. He wanted to do the best job possible, I think, and he wanted, he wanted to be rid of Morris Levy. He, he loved, as I said, he loved New York City. He loved walking around the city. Uh, when his uh, deposition was taken, we had, we had lunch at the Oyster Bar in Grand Central Terminal. Uh, another day, we had lunch at the, uh, in the Bull and Bear at the Waldorf Astoria. Sometimes people would ask him for autographs, but he had one rule, not while I'm eating. When I finish eating, I'll give you an autograph. And he, and he did that. The show that he, uh, this kind of salute to salute grade, John did not really want to do it. He had agreed to do it because Lou Grade had bought some of the Beatles publishing, and that was a source of angst uh, for John. But he, he decided to do it, and uh, he asked me if I wanted to come and see the, you know, the rehearsal that afternoon before the, the banquet started. And I said, oh, I'd love to. So went over to the New York Hilton where it was, and he introduced me to this band. I don't know whether you've seen the video, but he put the, the face masks on the back of, the, uh, of each of the musicians, and he had this red outfit on. He was chewing gum while he was singing, and each one of the songs he picked had a little message to uh, Sir Lou Grade that, you know, I really don't like you. So after the rehearsal, the sound check, uh, I went backstage and talked to them for a while, and then I left. That was a that was a big kick. But that was his last that was his last live performance. Mm. So on to the trial then. At the start of of nineteen seventy six, 
Uh, do you remember how you felt before the trial started? Were you confident? Do you generally get a feeling as a lawyer before you start a trial that she's going to go one way? Do you remember how you felt about about this case? Well, I don't think I don't think any lawyer can feel about how the case is going to go one way or the other. But we were prepared. I learned that very early in my career that you really had to be prepared. And I was ready. John was ready. We spent a lot of time going over the facts. I just was very comfortable. I thought we had a very good case because I thought the real reason that Morris had brought these, these two cases was he thought he'd be able to bully John and Capital and EMI into some kind of a deal, Joe, where you know they'd release the album on TV like he wanted in the first place. And I, I thought... I, I believe very early that he was he thought John was going to cave in the way he caved in in October of 1973 when he said to Harold Sider, don't bother me. I'm, I'm working. I'm working on this album. Settle it. Just go ahead and settle it. We had all our ducks in a row. We had witnesses ready. Jesse Ed, Eddie Motto, May Pang. John, of course, and John testified, you know, a lot in the in both parts of the trial. You know, you know, the the case was in three parts. It was the breach of contract, the oral contract. Then we and Capital and EMI filed counterclaims uh, against Morris, saying, "Damage this album. Uh, you damaged John's reputation. Uh, you cut back on the profits that Capital would have made." So. By the time the trial started, we were we were ready. Before we talk a bit about the the trial itself, we should talk a little bit about Morris Levy as a character, as a man. Um, he's obviously the mobster of the title of the book. What kind of person was he? What kind of man was Morris Levy? Morris Levy was a very dangerous gangster, and as a matter of fact, right after these two cases were started. Uh, by his lawyers in uh, February and early March of 1975. He and his uh, bodyguard, Nate McCalla, assaulted a police officer outside a bar or a restaurant uh, on the east side because apparently this police officer, who was actually a detective in plain clothes, had said something to a young woman who was with Morris. And Morris just, Morris went berserk. And Nate McCalla held this detective so that he couldn't defend himself. And Morris just punched him unmercifully. And the person who was with them was a very good friend, was Father Giganti, who was the younger brother of Vincent the Chin Giganti, who was the leader of the Genovese crime family. And Morris wound up knocking the, the detective's eye out so that he had to have a, uh, an operation they took to take the eye out. And then I guess he filed the lawsuit. And several months later in June, right around the time that I took Morris's deposition and he was indicted, he and Nate McCalla were indicted. And mysteriously, the civil case was settled. So Morris paid the detective. And then the criminal case, the files just disappeared hmm. in, the, in the New York courts. And there was never any trial. He was a bad guy. He was a very, very bad guy. And he was later indicted for extortion in 1986, 
along with a bunch of other mafiosi, was found guilty, sentenced to prison, uh, and then died of colon cancer before, uh, just right before he was going to start serving time. He was a tall guy. He was about 6'1", I guess. But he, he talked like this. He claimed that he had polyps in his throat. So there was another, you know, kind of, that was kind of a menacing aspect to him. Wow. So that was what you were up against. So let, let's talk a little bit about the, the trial. I mean, the, the highlight for me of the book is the time that you you talk to John on the stand. Um, there's huge amount of information there, which people will see when they when they read the book. Um, tell us a little bit about what it was like to examine John on the stand and, and how did you feel that John performed in court on this occasion? John was the best witness I ever had, either in a deposition or a trial uh, in 45 years. He was ready. Uh, I was ready. It was really like we were just having a conversation, uh, either in my office or in the Dakota. And we had the added very positive thing that after the mistrial in the first part of the case, when the case first started on January 12th, we wound up with another judge and we started the case two days later with this judge without a jury. And this judge was a classical harpsichord player. And he played in a classical music group, an amateur music group. He made it very clear the first time we met with him that he really didn't know anything about the Beatles or John Lennon. But he also stressed, I listened to a lot of music. When John and I met before he testified in this, uh, the second trial, we decided to make it, you know, I said to him, this has got to be a tutorial on how you and the Beatles wrote music, how you worked on music, how you took control of the mo- the albums, the album covers, uh, you're going to be able to communicate with the judge. And that worked so well that Levy's lawyer kept trying to object to these long colloquies where the judge would start questioning John. And in fact, there's the, the photo in the book that Bob Gruen took surreptitiously because he's not supposed to do that, sneaked his camera into the, into the courthouse and the courtroom. But if you look at that picture, John and the judge are looking at each other, and John has his hand up. He's pointing something out to the judge. They went on like that for pages, where John was really explaining the whole process. And, and I decided early on that uh, I had to have sections of the trial transcript, and John's testimony in the book. I, I had some pushback from people who were who were uh, interested in the book. And I said, no, we're, we're, we've got to have this testimony because I think Beatles fans, music fans, lawyers will find it uh, fascinating uh, the way John expressed himself and how he explained the whole process and, and his thinking, the two virgins out. How did he explain that and everything? We were both very comfortable. I don't think he was even slightly nervous never indicated to me that he was Mm. one of my favorite parts of the book is the the jesse ed davis story um who is probably known to most listeners as one of the 
guitarist that that John used in the mid seventies and played on many other artists' albums as well. He was someone that that was part of the trial, um, and you had quite a an interesting time with with Jesse. Can you tell us a little bit about what it was like dealing with him? Well. I decided just a couple of months before the trial started to interview the, the musicians because uh, I thought we could get some good testimony from them about the whole process. And so I flew to California and I interviewed Klaus Foreman, Jim Keltner, Bobby Keys. Bobby Keys said to me, I don't want Morris Levy to ever hear my name. <laughs> <laughs> so I finally tracked Jesse on that same trip down. He was traveling with uh, The Faces and Rod Stewart on a tour uh, in Detroit. And I met with him in the hotel room. And after about an hour of talking to him, I, I made the decision then that I was going to use him as a witness. He was very smart, very bright, had a great sense of humor. So when I came back to New York and I said to uh, John, I'm going to use Jesse uh, as a witness, he said, well, you better get Jesse into New York early, well before you need him. I said, why? What, what's the problem? He said, well, Jesse likes to party. So get him into New York, get him into the hotel where you're staying. I was staying in a hotel because I had a long commute out to New Jersey where I lived. So Jesse came into New York early and uh, he showed up for uh, the morning that he was going to testify uh, in a, a beautiful green suit with uh, a vest, black tie, because he had this jet black hair. He was an Indian from uh, Oklahoma that hung down on his shoulders. And his testimony was great. And the, and the best line in the whole thing was, was one that I didn't tell him about, because I, I really didn't tell him too much, because Levy's lawyer had never taken any depositions of the, the witnesses. So he had no idea what the other witness I used was Eddie Motto, the acoustic guitar player. He had no idea what they were going to say. And if he'd really been smart, he would not have cross-examined them because one of the rules of a trial is you don't ask a witness on cross-examination a question unless you know the answer. And he didn't know what Jesse was saying. And he started into this whole thing about things that Morris had provided for uh, some of the recording. And when he asked about lead sheets, Jesse said, well, you don't need a lead sheet to play Tutti Frutti, you know. And Eddie, Eddie Motto said something very similar. Uh, he said, well, we knew all the songs from, from when we were kids. And John would just say, okay, let's do Tutti Frutti and play a couple of bars and off we'd go. Jesse was terrific. Another one of the people that you, you dealt with during the trial and, and someone that's of interest to most of my listeners, I'm sure, is May Pang. Tell us a little bit about your impressions of May and how, how she reacted maybe with John and just reacted generally in the trial itself. You know, May and, and John, as I guess everybody knows, had been pushed into each other's arms by Yoko uh, when John and, and Yoko separated in the summer of 73. May was very smart, a very pretty young woman, and they took her deposition. She was fine in her deposition. She didn't make any, any mistakes. She basically, basically told the story. John told Morris over and over again, I have to get EMI's permission. And nothing was in writing. So May just 
you know, we went over the facts, like I went over the facts with John, and she just repeated our, our basic story of the facts. There was no agreement. There was no understanding. Morris knew exactly what was happening. So she was, she was a very good witness. We did have the one incident. The trial was in the winter, and May was in court one day, but we didn't use her because we didn't get to her in the, in the witness list. And she showed up the next day, and at the end of the day, when her testimony was over, and that it was, that's the way the day ended, John, John came up to me as I was packing my bags with all our stuff, and he said, he whispered to me, he said, Jay, Jay, you've got to get May into the elevator get her out of here. And I said, what are you talking about? She's wearing Yoko's coat. And apparently Yoko had given May this coat a couple of years before or a year before or whatever. And I said, she, she's what? She's wearing Yoko's coat. He said, we can't be in the elevator together. You've got to get her out of here. <laughs> wow. Uh, so we should talk about the the conclusion of the trial as most listeners will know it, it it ended well for for john and yoko and yourself and others associated with you and and john can you just, just tell us why you think you were successful and how did you feel when it was when it was over well you know it stretched out over several months it started in january then we had some some portions of the trial in March uh, and April. John and Yoko came every day to the trial. The night before the first day, it was a Sunday night. John called me at the hotel uh, about midnight and he said, can Yoko come to the trial? And I said, oh, absolutely. I'm sorry. I didn't, I would have invited her. Uh, Sean was then about three months old. They showed up every morning with the limo. They'd come up to my office. We'd chat a little bit and we'd go down in the limo, and they they were there for 20 days. And um, a lot of those days, John did not have to testify, but he really came because, and they came because they wanted to demonstrate to the judge that they were interested in this case. This case was important. So when the breach of contract case uh, ended, John was ecstatic. We got this written decision uh, about 28 pages long on a Friday night, Six o'clock, I called him and he was yelling to Yoko, we won, we won, we won. You know, to get to your question about whether, whether we thought we were going to win or not, we were prepared. We were prepared for the trial and John was prepared and uh, we did a terrific job. And frankly, Morris's lawyers did a terrible job. And, and they had a terrible client because Morris could not keep his, his story straight on the witness stand. So, I mean, after the first part, uh, and I went home that week and I thought, wow, this is one of the highlights of my career. And then we won the, the second part. And John was ex ex excited about that too. But once the second part was over, he said, I'm out. I don't want to have anything more to do because we had this one little section that we had to try based on the, the breach of the come together settlement. And that was a big defeat for Morris also. And how did you feel when it was all, all finished? Was it a relief or did you feel sad that you wouldn't be, you know, seeing John or was it, as you say, was it just a case of another case that you won? Well, uh, during that same year, uh, 1976, I tried two other cases. Uh, I tried one, another one in the federal court 
during one of the breaks between uh, the Lennon case. And then I tried another case in September in uh, Nashville. And, yeah, I, I guess, you know, it was, there's always a letdown uh, after, you know, after a case is over. It's, you're on that high. And then when it's over, you feel, oh, okay. There was kind of a letdown because uh, John and I had so much fun. Mm. You end the book, or toward the end of the book, is you, you describe, a, which I think is, is really important to, to share with listeners, you describe a, a meeting that you had with, with Yoko, albeit quite brief, at the end of, of 1980. Tell us a little bit about how, where that was and, and how that happened. Well, at the, by 1980, uh, I was actually representing, I was the lawyer for Record Plant, where John and Yoko worked quite a bit. I had heard that they were recording this album, which, and then it came out in November, Double Fantasy, but they hadn't done it at the record plant. And I had a client named Eve Moon, who uh, I had just helped her negotiate a deal with Capital in 79, and she was starting to record her first album, and she was doing it at record plant. And so one night on the way home, it head down to the record plant that was on the west side, not far from the the uh, bus terminal where I would take the bus out to New Jersey and uh, stopped in. Uh, and as I came in the front door of the record plant on the ground floor, 44th street, Yoko was sitting across the room and I was very surprised, very surprised to see her. And since she was there, I knew that John was probably there. They had two studios in, in those days. So I walked across the room and uh, said hello to her. And she said, what are you doing here? And I explained, you know, I had Eve Moon, my client. I'm just stopping on the way home to check in and see how she's doing. I asked how John was and went up and into the studio where Eve was working and, uh, you know, left about an hour, hour later. And I've always felt I should have asked her, what studio is, is John in? But I, but I didn't. That was, it was, it was disappointing because I know John, even though I hadn't seen him since early January when we argued uh, the appeal, Morris appealed the whole case. He lost that also, except the damages were reduced. And I think, you know, I think he would have liked to have seen me. I would have liked to have seen him and, you know, have a couple of laughs. And, uh, and it turned out that they were working on a single, he and Jack Douglas, called Walking on Thin Ice. After John was killed, and this isn't in the book, two days after he was killed, Roy Sakala, who was the senior engineer at Record Plant, called me and he said, I just got a call from Yoko's office that they're going to send somebody down to pick up all of John's tapes that are stored here. And I said, what are you talking about? He said, well, we've got a small cage filled with John's tapes, some of which have been here for years. And I said, I'll be right over. So I jumped in a taxi, went down to record plant. Roy took me into a, a back room. And here was this, this cage with a metal crossing, you know, like a fence around mm. it yeah. and stacks of master tapes. And I said to him, You've got to get a guard in here 24-7, and you've got to start doing an inventory. He said, well, after we got this call, I, I, already, I already started. 
having somebody do an inventory. I said, you've got to have a guard here 24-7 uh, from a licensed top guard company. Uh, you've got to do this inventory. And these tapes aren't going anywhere until we find out who owns them. Because John was under capital, under contract to EMI and capital. They paid for all of these recording sessions. So make a long story short, I did meet with Yoko again and her lawyer sometime in the next year or so, because it took three years, Joe, to sort this out. All of the master tapes from Double Fantasy were there too. And came pretty quickly that we were able to release them because they were recorded at the Hit Factory and David Geffen's company mm. paid for them. And although I think I think maybe John and Yoko did a deal with Geffen where they would own them, but I, I don't know that for a fact. But it took another couple of years with uh, Yoko's lawyers, Capital's lawyers, um, Apple's lawyers in England were involved before we finally sorted it out. But in the meantime, we finally decided to get them out of the record plant and we shipped them to a storage facility in the Catskill Mountains called Iron Mountain. And you can, you can look Iron Mountain up. It's these underground caves that have been developed into uh, storage facilities for really very important documents and, and things like that. And that's where we, we kept them until we got an agreement from Capital, EMI, Yoko, and Apple waiving any responsibility of us. They paid our legal fees. They paid all the costs of the, uh, the storage. Uh, so I, di I did meet Yoko at a, at a restaurant with Roy Sakala sometime in, in 81 or 82 uh, about those uh, tapes. And, and I have, in the course of getting these, this inventory, which was pages and pages and pages, I also got these, these five or six pages of record plant documents, which showed what John and Jack Douglas were doing at the record plant on December 3rd, which was the night that I stopped there, 4th, 5th, the 6th, I think they went back to the, to the uh, hit factory. And they might have done that famous interview with the BBC. Yeah. Uh, I think they might have done that. That was a Saturday. Yeah. They might have done that at, over at the hit factory. And then they came back on the 8th, the day he was killed. That night, late that afternoon, I guess, and we're working that night. And finally, when he left, they went home to the Dakota, and that's when he was. Uh, that's when he was shot. Those documents. At some point, I think I'm going to put them on my uh, my website because I don't think anybody's ever seen them, and certainly not in the last uh, 40 years. And it's got you know, it's got a lot of notes on it about what they were doing with this uh, walking on thin ice. Yeah. So that was the last time that you saw Yoko was in that 81, 82 bid. You, you yes. never saw yes. us since then, right? Okay. Yes. Fascinating. Uh, so to, just to conclude, Jay, I suppose my last question is, as you said, this has been a five-year project, this, this book for you. Um, it must have brought back some pretty vivid memories of your time with, with John and, and Yoko. What was the experience like writing the book for you? And, and, and how, do you, how do you feel about those months that you spent with John and Yoko now? It was one of those things that happen in your career that you don't forget. And it was a happy time. And John was, uh, was very relaxed. 
He was very chilled. He was comfortable in dropping out of the music business. I think that was a very happy time in his life, even though he was going through the, uh, the trial. That was part of that period. Uh, but I think he felt very comfortable about it uh, once we really got into it and got to know each other. And uh, I tell a story in the book about how we ate, restaurant, we ate lunch every day at the Sloppy Louis down near the, uh, the East River, the old Fulton Fish Market. And also the story how I went back there 20 years later and they had the album, the Red Album, the Beatles Red Album framed. And John and Yoko had gone back there just to have lunch later on. He was a very special person. All I can say is thank you so much for, for writing the book, Jay, and for, and, and for sharing your memories with us today. Thanks, thanks so much for your time. Well, you're, you're welcome. Thank you, Joe.